This is the new Criterion. I'm James Panero, executive editor. From Permanent Things, Russell Kirk's Centenary, a symposium on the conservative thinkers' enduring ideas. This is Daniel McCarthy on Russell Kirk, Worldly Conservative. Versions of this presentation and others appear in the January 2019 issue of The New Criterion. Much of the discussion we've just had actually tees up my comments very effectively, but clearing perhaps the ground a little bit more with a brief remark on Whigs and Tories. When Russell Kirk thought about the Tory tradition, he thought about it in light not only of you know, his own time, but largely in light of the 19th century, largely in light of the recovery of Toryism that had been conducted by Benjamin Disraeli and by any number of literary figures. Uh, one finds this uh, somewhat in Walter Scott as well. So Toryism in the 19th century came to mean a connection with and a continuity between the modern world and the medieval world that was not necessarily what Toryism meant in the 17th century, or rather in the 18th century. In Burke's time, while you did have an isolated Tory or two, such as Samuel Johnson, who was a literary man and who had this rather defensible view of Toryism, Toryism in general, when uh, during Burke's lifetime, was seen as being connected to the Jacobite cause, to the cause of you know having a, a kind of counter-revolution to undo the revolution of 1688. Toryism was connected with the somewhat exotic views of Viscount Bolingbroke. And uh, one can see in that context why Edmund Burke would be a Whig rather than a Tory, whereas, again, I think Russell Kirk thought of himself as a Tory based on the recovery of Toryism, the renovation of Toryism that had been developed in the 19th century rather after uh, Edmund Burke's uh, own time. And it's curious, too, because actually, I mean, Burke has a little bit of an influence in the divisions, of course, of the Whig Party at the end of the uh, 18th century and certain fragments of the Whig Party, the independent Whigs, come to be the basis of you know, the new conservative party and the Tory party. So there's an interesting amount of sort of ebb and flow and crossover between Whig and Tory in precisely the period that we're most interested in, which is you know, Burke's time and the time of the American Revolution. But now let me move us much farther into the future and ask the provocative question, where does Russell Kirk fit into the age of Donald Trump? And more generally, where does Russell Kirk and his conception of conservatism fit into today's conflicts over the meaning of conservatism? Well, it seems to me that there are right answers and wrong answers to both of these questions. And I'm actually going to spend perhaps more time exploring the wrong answer because I think we can learn a lot from uh, seeing where it comes from and seeing why it is wrong. Well, conservatism, of course, in the age of Trump uh, is something that has become very contentious. It's something where a number of people who might not be thought of as authorities or reliable guides to conservatism have felt the need to weigh in. So we have uh, a number of progressives, liberals, and others who are telling us that, you know, Donald Trump is not a real conservative. Real conservatism is something else. And we have a number of never-Trump conservatives who uh, similarly say the same thing. And they seem to be a rather small minority as far as uh, Republican or perhaps self-identified conservative voters are concerned. But nevertheless, uh, the never-Trump voices are quite influential within our public sphere. We see in part, and this is not necessarily you know, taking a side on the merits of Donald Trump, I have my own views there, but simply observing the pattern of the debate and the way in which it is framed, we can note something very interesting, which is that 
the phenomenon of strange new respect, which conservatives have been familiar with in many other contexts, seems to be operational here as well. This is the phenomenon where a conservative figure or even just a Republican political figure who at one point was demonized as a radical right-winger, perhaps a racist, certainly a militarist, someone who was you know, a, a grave peril to the republic, is subsequently rehabilitated as in fact a wise statesman who was a sort of benchmark of civility compared to whoever the conservative leader is, whoever the Republican uh, figure in, uh, dominant in politics might be today. So Barry Goldwater, for example, was seen as someone who had his a hair trigger on the nuclear button, right, uh, in 1964. We get the Daisy ad. We get this uh, image of Barry Goldwater as someone who is going to foist a nuclear apocalypse upon us uh, should he become president. Years later, Barry Goldwater is seen as being the stalwart defender of real conservatism against the pro-life movement and against Christian conservatism and so forth. Suddenly, Goldwater had found uh, a new fan base among the left and progressives. We've seen this uh, more recently with respect to George W. Bush in contrast to Donald Trump. Anyone who remembers the George W. Bush era remembers that there were you know, quite colorful protests in the streets about uh, George W. Bush. And it wasn't just about the Iraq War. I mean, you may recall that during uh, the Republican National Convention in 2004, for example, there were very uh, flamboyant left-wingers with their puppets and other things going out there and protesting the idea that you know George W. Bush was a a radical and an extremist in every respect. Now, however, George W. Bush is someone who is often photographed with Michelle Obama, someone who is seen as being very much a safe and nice and civil kind of conservative in contrast to the conservative who's now demonized, the Republican who's now demonized, namely Donald Trump. Well, this phenomenon of strange new respect operates in the intellectual sphere as well as the political one. And it was actually operative in the 1950s at the time when Russell Kirk wrote uh, The Conservative Mind and when, when Russell Kirk first became a major public figure, a major public intellectual. So you'll see, for example, uh, in the discussions of Russell Kirk and some of his contemporaries that many progressives, Arthur Schlesinger being a notable one, would point to Clinton Rossiter as a much more acceptable kind of conservative uh, than Russell Kirk. And Kirk was not seen as being the most sort of hardline or right-wing or troubling uh, conservative at that time, but he was certainly seen as being less acceptable, less clubbable than someone like Clinton Rossiter. Well, Clinton Rossiter's idea of conservatism was basically just a kind of moderation. And similarly, you could take a figure like Peter Virick, and you also find a conservatism that really doesn't draw sharp distinctions between left and right, especially within contemporary American politics. So Peter Virick, whose Conservatism Revisited is published in 1949, Virick is someone who actually supports Adlai Stevenson in both 1952 and 1956. And, you know, Adlai Stevenson was not a radical leftist or anything of that nature, but certainly at that time, it's interesting to draw the contrast between Peter Virick as an Adlai Stevenson conservative and Russell Kirk as a Robert Taft conservative. Russell Kirk and others uh, of his uh, sort of disposition were actually somewhat critical of Dwight Eisenhower. They thought Eisenhower was not stern enough in holding back the growth of the New Deal and the growth of the, uh, the welfare state. Russell Kirk famously thought that the school lunch program that existed in the 1950s was uh, a totalitarian innovation, that it had a seed of great danger within it. So Rossiter was seen as being, you know, by far the more uh, respectable kind of conservative than Russell Kirk. And Russell Kirk did get a somewhat respectful hearing from the mainstream. Partly this is thanks to Whitaker Chambers, who arranged a favorable review of the conservative mind in uh, Time magazine. But 
the more that Kirk expressed himself in politics, the more that Kirk expressed himself in light of the controversies of the 1950s, the more that Kirk came to be seen as being, if not himself part of what was you know, at the time denounced as the so-called radical right. You might be familiar with Richard Hofstetter and Daniel Bell and their denunciations of the embryo of right-wing populism even in the 1950s. Kirk was not seen as being you know, quite as bad as that, but he was seen as being someone who was too soft on the populace, too soft on the uh, so-called radical right, whereas a Virick or a Rossiter would be you know, sort of nicely denunciatory towards them. So Russell Kirk had this degree of worldliness to him. He was seen as being a little bit too connected to the realities of conservative politics in America in the 1950s and then into the 1960s than progressives really thought was acceptable in a conservative uh, thinker. So even though Russell Kirk was certainly a man of letters, he was a literary man more than he was a political figure, nonetheless his proximity to politics was something that was always held against him by the literati. This is significant because in the decades since The Conservative Mind was published in 1953, there has been a recurrent tendency for progressives to try to encourage conservatives to be as unworldly as possible. And there's even been a tendency for them to try occasionally to co-opt Russell Kirk and to make uh, Kirk a sort of bludgeon against any practical conservatism. And this has even been internalized to some degree by a number of conservatives themselves, in some cases because they have sort of not been properly catechized within their own tradition. So there are certain uh, sources of unworldliness in terms of conservative attitudes that one finds uh, today, for example. One of these is the escape into culture and a disregard uh, of politics, the view that only culture matters. Matthew Continenti, in an essay just published today, in fact, uh, refers to this as a literary contempt for politics. The second uh, source of conservative unworldliness, and again, this is something that you know, progressives always try to applaud because they see it as something that actually neutralizes their enemy, is a kind of excessive ethical refinement, a refinement to a degree that makes practical politics impossible. Ethical here is uh, meant in a kind of formal way. It's a sort of etiquette as opposed to a kind of substantive ethics. This is something one finds, for example, in many conservatives who've been brought through a very platonic tradition. They have these extreme ideals about ethical conduct, which makes them very incapable of dealing with real-world politics. You'll see they often have a strong allergy to Niccolò Machiavelli. And it's not that a conservative must be a Machiavellian, but a conservative should at least uh, understand why a quasi-Machiavellian practical approach to politics is a necessary counterbalance to a platonic perfectionist view of ethics. So you have those first two elements of uh, conservative unworldliness. And then the third element of conservative unworldliness is something that's been alluded to a few times on this panel already. And that is a tendency for conservatives, especially traditionalist intellectual conservatives, to exhibit a disconnection from their fellow Americans and their fellow Americans' imperfect existence and the imperfect political traditions of our own country. And this includes an alienation from Americans' patriotic self-understanding. This is usually not framed explicitly in terms of, you know, Americans are bad or something like that, but that America has fatal flaws within its own founding uh, because the founding was not sufficiently Aristotelian or not sufficiently Thomistic, that uh, we, you know, did not uh, follow through with our agrarian tendencies at the very beginning of the country and that we've therefore become commercial, we've become modern instead of medieval or classical, 
and we have philosophically nothing to stand on except John Locke. And this leads to uh, a degree, as uh, Jeff Pollitt had said, of despair among conservatives. They say that uh, you know, if America is really predicated on such flawed foundations, then how can there possibly be anything to save? The most we can do, perhaps, is to retreat into our own enclaves or retreat into writing our own books and reading our own books without having any interaction with the great public, especially any political interaction with the great public. Well, how is it that someone like Russell Kirk could be uh, co-opted or misunderstood in this unworldly fashion? Well, as Ken Cribb has said, uh, Russell Kirk certainly did value culture and the great tradition of the West over practical politics. Kirk did not exclude politics from his concerns, but he did say that you know life was about something higher and better in the end and not simply the uh, sort of grubbing battles for power or even battles to restrain power. And second, you know, Russell Kirk certainly did have a very strong ethical outlook. Um, it was, I think, uh, one that should not be characterized as very formal. Uh, Russell Kirk was an Augustinian. He was, as uh, Daniel Mahoney has reminded us, a bohemian Tory. But he did have, you know, uh, uh, very high ethical standards, and I think he would be troubled by the vulgarity that we see in certain corners of the popular right today, as well as very much so on the left and in other places. And thirdly, Russell Kirk did have a strongly critical view of the liberal and libertarian dimensions of American public life. And he did have a very strong romantic fondness for agrarianism, uh, for the Middle Ages, and for European traditions. So in all these respects, uh, it's possible to form a view of Russell Kirk as being a man out of time and place, as being someone who is you know, sort of alienated from and distanced from uh, the America in which he lived and who was really a man of a different place and a different time. But that's a misunderstanding. These elements might lead people to think that uh, Russell Kirk would have no place whatsoever in the uh, America and the conservative movement of the Donald Trump era. It might lead people to think that uh, if there was such a place, it would purely be a critical one that Russell Kirk would be perhaps on the side of uh, David Frum or Connor Friedersdorf as a relentless critic of uh, the administration and of what conservatism uh, has become in the year 2018. But there are good reasons to think that Russell Kirk would, in fact, have a very different practical political outlook today. First of all, Russell Kirk had, even as he was a man of letters, even as he was someone who prioritized culture over raw politics, nonetheless, Kirk had a persistent and rather, you know, sort of enthusiastic at times engagement with practical politics and with party politics. Russell Kirk was not only an enthusiast for Barry Goldwater's 1964 presidential campaign, he wrote uh, at least one speech for Barry Goldwater as well, but Kirk also was quite comfortable with the Republicans who came after Barry Goldwater, including Richard Nixon. And as we've heard earlier, Russell Kirk became uh, quite supportive indeed of Pat Buchanan. And in 1992, he was actually uh, the campaign chairman for Buchanan's campaign in the state of Michigan. Kirk was also uh, not only quite comfortable with the Reagan administration, he and his wife helped the administration in terms of uh, educational policy. And Kirk at that time, while he certainly lived in Macosta, Michigan, while he did enjoy his independence as a scholar, he did not keep a conservative movement and its institution at arm's length. He did not have an adversarial relationship or an alienated relationship, conservatism elsewhere in the country. So he had a regular series in the late 1980s and early 1990s of talks that he delivered at the Heritage Foundation, for example. Kirk did not shun politics. He did not hold politicians to saintly standards, whether morally or in terms of some sort of political correctness uh, in terms of conservative philosophy. 
He did not believe that all was lost because America was built upon uh, rotten foundations, as some traditionalist conservatives have perhaps tended to think. Kirk, in fact, had a political outlook that seems unusually well-suited for this era of conservative thought in 2018 and looking forward. Let's look at some of the great themes, for example, that have come out uh, during the Trump era. One of these is um, the question of whether America should be a kind of multicultural nation of nations or whether America, in fact, has a mainstream tradition. Russell Kirk had very definite views on this. Russell Kirk was uh, engaged in the 1990s uh, sort of first round of conflicts over uh, the nature of uh, what Samuel Huntington uh, called the question of who we are. So Russell Kirk wrote a book, for example, called uh, America's British Culture, which emphasized precisely that, that we had this particularly British patrimony, uh, which we should be conscious of, affirm, and preserve, and that we are not simply a, uh, you know, a, a totally revised, futuristic, uh, you know, sort of multicultural Brazil of uh, the 21st century. Russell Kirk, um, you know, as we've had uh, mentioned earlier, was strongly opposed to nation-building and democratization projects abroad. On the other hand, um, although he might joke occasionally about being a pacifist, in fact, he was not averse to the use of military force when doing so would actually serve American interests or um, help America in a, in a war that we were already fighting. So, for example, he advised uh, President Nixon that Nixon should go ahead and mine the Haiphong Harbor in Vietnam. This was something that would be considered an, an escalation of the conflict. But Kirk was uh, quite comfortable with it. And I think similarly, Russell Kirk would look at today's uh, you know, sort of ongoing conflicts with terrorism and insurgency in the Islamic world, and he would probably not be shocked by or repulsed by the idea that, for example, very tough measures were necessary against the Islamic State. He was against democratization, but that does not mean he was against uh, all you know, applications of U.S. military force. It was uh, the ideological as opposed to the, the practical level that was uh, sort of most salient for him. Russell Kirk was a believer in political economy rather than economics as the master social science. But his economics, he wrote an economics textbook in the uh, late 1980s, and it actually uh, is quite Smithian. And uh, I believe, uh, you know, a little earlier in our panel, we had this question of did the conservative movement uh, choose between Hayek and uh, Russell Kirk early on? And there was a great deal of conflict between Kirk and Hayek at the very beginning. And in fact, they both appeared at a meeting of the Mont Pelerin Society where there were some sparks that flew. Russell Kirk was critical of the Mont Pelerin Society's libertarianism and classical liberalism. And Hayek delivered a talk at that meeting, I believe it was 58 or so, 59, which later became the basis for the concluding chapter of the Constitution of Liberty in 1960. Those of you familiar with Hayek will know that that chapter is called Why I Am Not a Conservative. And that chapter was in part written as a, a kind of shot across the bow of Russell Kirk. However, um, towards the end of his life, uh, in the 1980s and then into the 1990s, Russell Kirk did come to a greater appreciation of Adam Smith. Um, he was not, again, a sort of pure Smithian, but he was someone who understood that there were indeed profound connections and outlook between Edmund Burke and Adam Smith, and he included uh, David Hume in that uh, constellation as well. He warmed up a little bit to Hayek as well in the sense that he thought that Hayek was actually moving in his direction. He thought that uh, Hayek was becoming a little bit more respectful of tradition and conservatism as Hayek uh, got older.
By the way, I should note that what is true of Russell Kirk, that he was someone who was actually engaged in politics, even if he was primarily a literary person, that he was someone who was actually very much in tune with many of what would now be called uh, the populist sentiments of the right, far from being aloof, far from being a kind of isolated elitist. But much of what was true of Russell Kirk was also true much earlier of Edmund Burke. There is this tendency now for a number of, again, uh, people uh, who want to criticize conservatism as it actually exists in America to say that, um, oh, Edmund Burke would be appalled by uh, what this administration is doing, or Edmund Burke uh, would repudiate uh, you know, what we see in American conservatism today. But in fact, one can take a look, at, for example, at Burke's concerns about what he called double cabinet, which was the idea of kind of a conspiracy between the king and the prime minister to um, subvert the will of parliament more generally, uh, the legislature more generally, and thereby the sort of will and the rights of uh, the, the, the British people. Burke's view of double cabinet and its corruption of political power uh, is very much in parallel with the you know, contemporary conservative critique today of the administrative state. Uh, both of them are driven by fundamental um, constitutional concerns that uh, do have direct political applications. Burke was not shy about getting involved in these controversies, uh, just as conservatives today are not uh, uh, averse to criticizing the deep state or the administrative state. Now, all of this is not to say that uh, Russell Kirk would find everything about perhaps uh, Donald Trump's program today to be sympathetic. Kirk certainly had a great deal of openness to refugees, as you may have heard attested earlier. He um, welcomed into his home refugees from any number of countries. Although one should note here that the openness Russell Kirk demonstrated towards refugees from many places tended to be for uh, the victims of communism. And I you know, suspect very strongly, without being able to know for certain, that uh, Russell Kirk would have a rather skeptical view of refugee policies that failed to make uh, sufficient distinctions or to have sufficient protections to make sure that we were not having oppressors come over as well as the oppressed and that we were not allowing potential victimizers and those who carried out the uh, terrible things that caused refugee waves in the first place to be part of the waves themselves. Kirk did not run, for example, he did not open his house to, for example, Bader-Meinhof radicals who were refugees on the run from the German authorities in the 1980s. So Kirk actually had quite a worldly interaction with politics, both in terms of politicians that he admired and uh, had interactions with, and in terms of some of the issues uh, that were actually very important to him and that he wrote about and incorporated into his works. But, you know, I mean, there are some people who claim that this was all an aberration, that, okay, Kirk may have taken an interest in Barry Goldwater, he may have taken an interest in Nixon or Pat Buchanan, but these things really don't speak to the fundamental intellectual work that Kirk had undertaken. They don't speak to the philosophy of the conservative mind. These are just sort of personal quirks that uh, Kirk exhibited. One finds this to some degree in uh, Bradley Berzer's, uh, for the most part, very admirable biography of Russell Kirk, which is called Russell Kirk, American Conservative. Certainly practical politics is not where Kirk's legacy lies, but Kirk's practical politics existed alongside his cultural work, and they actually had a, an, an organic connection. Kirk was a conservative in full. He was not simply a literary man retired from the world, that is, retired from his country and his countrymen. Kirk should properly be read by conservatives who are too engaged in politics as a tonic to the excesses of politics and partisanship, and as a reminder of the higher, deeper, and better things that exist beyond the struggle for power or even the struggle to restrain power. But if his work is a corrective to utilitarian and muscle-minded uh, excesses in practical politics, his work should not be read as a justification for excesses in the opposite direction, 
toward the direction of quietism in the abstract and a kind of small-scale uh, perfectionism that retreats from politics into a kind of uh, cloister or monastery. Politics still matters because politics can still serve the higher ends of life. Russell Kirk was actually quite, you know, an optimist would be a little bit of a, uh, the wrong term, but he had the virtue of hope. He did not uh, surrender to the pessimism that one sometimes finds among uh, traditionalist conservatives. Russell Kirk thought that, in fact, you know, as Ken Cribb had mentioned uh, briefly on the last panel, uh, Kirk had this tendency to say that I salute the, the rising generation. Kirk was extremely encouraged by the tendencies he saw among young Americans who discovered his work and who discovered conservative thought and who took to it like ducks to water. He saw that there was actually a certain flimsiness and vulnerability to liberal orthodoxy and to you know, the kinds of corruptions that uh, people are subjected to and that in fact uh, these things could be uh, counteracted by salutary educational efforts and that young people really would respond favorably to a deep and serious conservatism. Well, American uh, politics still matters because politics can still serve the higher ends of life, and it can do this because we have a sound foundation in our political order. And that foundation is sound because it is not entirely built upon John Locke or the Declaration of Independence. That was certainly Russell Kirk's view, that we have a continuity between America today and the medieval world and uh, the world of uh, classical civilization. Uh, Daniel Mahoney had mentioned uh, The Roots of American Order, a book that Russell Kirk writes in the 1970s, which traces the influence of Jerusalem, Athens, Rome, and England upon uh, the American polity today. This is one of the distinctions between, I think, Russell Kirk and Leo Strauss and Strauss's students, that whereas among students of Strauss there's this tendency to emphasize waves of modernity that are discontinuities between uh, modern thought and uh, medieval and classical thought, Russell Kirk rejected that kind of model. He did see that there were dangerous innovations in modernity, but he believed very much that we have a legacy and a patrimony that has survived from uh, time immemorial. And not only that, but also Kirk, uh, much like Edmund Burke, had a belief in providence. He really did believe that there is a divine hand guiding our history, and that even though we may be subjected to trial, as indeed uh, we must be, that we would nonetheless ultimately have our nation uh, and we as a people have God's benevolence upon us and that this, whatever struggles we may face, we are nonetheless not going to be abandoned to some sort of abyss of history. So Russell Kirk uh, was very much a worldly conservative, even as he was a man of letters, even as he was a man who prioritized philosophy and culture. And it seems to me that far from being someone who uh, is deserving of the strange and perverse new respect that the left uh, now accords to various figures who are uh, deceased, you've seen this happen with Bill Buckley, for example, that Buckley is now held out as some sort of probable conservative beau ideal of civility who uh, is a rebuke to any kind of a conservative who's actually writing or you know, active in politics today. When, of course, at the time, Buckley was considered to be uh, someone who was uh, you know, quite, a, uh, quite known for sharp elbows. And uh, even if he was perhaps more acceptable in the John Birch Society, he was nevertheless far from being someone that the liberal establishment would welcome into its councils. Russell Kirk, likewise, uh, like Buckley and like many of the conservative political figures that Kirk supported, was someone who is not uh, easily neutered, is not someone who is easily turned into a sort of harmless, merely cultural uh, commentator. He's someone whose cultural thought is important on, in its own right, but it also has tremendous implications for politics. Uh, for one reason we have 
our engagement in politics is precisely so we can defend uh, these higher uh, ends and the, defend this tradition of Western civilization that we have inherited. Russell Kirk knew that the end is the most important thing, but if you f- believe in the end, then you must also have practical means. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Very good. Yeah, that's great. Brian? Uh, Dan, those were fascinating comments, um, and my question is related to that. Kirk referred to himself as a northern agrarian at one point. Um, and his work certainly seems rooted, as, as you noted, in a, in a kind of uh, rural or agrarian conservatism. And Roger talked in his opening comments that conservatism is about loss. So Kirk may have evoked a kind of lost agrarianism. But he was very, very critical of industrial society. Somebody mentioned earlier his quote that cars were mechanical Jacobins. Automobiles. He wrote uh, (laughs) automobiles, yes. He he wrote with hostility about cities, about factories. Yet one of the major themes of the Trump era is this recognition that something's been lost in the evisceration of our industrial economy, you know, in the closing of the factories and the the breakdown of the communities that surrounded that economy. A lot of of people have written on the opioid crisis as growing out of that breakdown. So I'm wondering, from a Kirkian perspective, should we look back more nostalgically at the industrial era and maybe rethink that position of criticism and hostility? There are, um, I think, certain changes one can detect uh, in Russell Kirk's thought or the direction or tendency of his thought. Early on, Russell Kirk has a somewhat more pessimistic view of the world in general. And a lot of this pessimism, interestingly enough, seems to come from a libertarian influence upon him fairly early on, specifically the influence of Albert J. Nock, who was a a great pessimist. And so uh, one finds this, you know, it's one reason I think perhaps why when the conservative mind was a dissertation draft, it was titled The Conservative's Route, Their Defeat, Mm -hmm. which is very uncharacteristic of the later Kirk, who becomes, you know, quite confident that however dark things may seem at a particular time, the future really does belong to this recovery of tradition, that this is a, these are permanent things. There is an undying substance uh, that we can, uh, sort of, that not only can we recover, but that inevitably will be recovered because the experiments against reality that are conducted by uh, the radicals will inevitably fail. Kirk's agrarianism sprang in part from his own experience of having worked briefly in a Ford Motor Company factory, which was a very unpleasant experience for him. And it was, it's wonderful that Kirk had a number of life experiences. He was a well-rounded individual who took away from a very unpleasant bureaucratic institutions uh, an absolute horror of uh, regimentation and bureaucratic control. So his experience uh, in the army during World War II was one of the things that helped to make him a strong critic of the idea that, uh, you know, anything involving the military is necessarily wonderful and efficient and admirable. He was, you know, quite uh, disillusioned by his own experience uh, in the armed forces. Uh, His experience with the Ford Motor Company made him a critic of uh, industrialism. And uh, his experiences as a uh, teacher in Michigan, as a a faculty uh, member, it was Michigan Michigan State University, yeah. Michigan State College at the time, yeah. That's right, Behemoth U, as he called it. That uh, made him, you know, a very stern critic of uh, the academy. 
what what is the common thread of all these things is that Kirk does not like the bureaucratization and the regimentation of life. So even though there is a certain romantic element to some of his agrarianism, he is aware of the the flaws and the necessary evils that are incorporated into the modern industrial economy. One of the questions, however, that I think a modern Kirkian, Kirkian looking at the world today must answer is if there has been a loss as we moved from the agrarian world to the world of the factory, will there be a further loss if we move from the world of the factory to the world of the virtual economy, to the world of, um, you know, whether it's flipping burgers or stacking boxes in an Amazon warehouse, is there something here that is even worse than the former kind of industrial regimentation? And I think this is a question that really is a fruitful one to explore. Thomas Jefferson was not entirely wrong to see that the abstract ideal of the yeoman farmer would create a certain kind of state. It would create a, a certain kind of community in which you would not have the need for large uh, controlling powers. Now, obviously, Jefferson was trying to shuffle under the carpet the plantation realities of slavery and so forth. But the ideal of the yeoman farmer made sense as a contrast to the kind of um, corruption that he saw in urbanism and industrialism. And Jefferson was not entirely wrong about that. Kirk continued that actual Jeffersonian strain in American thought that had this sense of agrarian virtue and uh, sort of industrial and urban corruption. But now in the 21st century, uh, we have to confront the question of what does post-industrialism look like? Does it look like a return to a more communitarian way of life? Does it mean that we can uh, sort of disengage now from the factories and cities? Or does it mean, in fact, that um, the vices of the industrial world might be replaced now by perhaps even worse vices and uh, even worse system of political economy? Thank you. Rusty? Again, I think that the problem of unworldliness, I would call it tendency towards anti-politics, is uh, it's a really it's really important and more widespread than we realize and it has a left version and a right version it seems to me I think John Rawls is uh, endorses an anti-politics in the sense that we're supposed to winnow down our political debates to the absolute minimum of matters of consequence so the technocratic sensibility emerges in this metaphysical impoverishment of public life but I would say that on the right the origins, I think you're right, the only culture matters uh, mentality, which has really come to the fore, I think, for come to the fore for the immediate purpose of preserving fusionism by keeping social conservatives sort of on message, right? Stick to cultural evangelization. Don't interfere with the governance of the country. But it has its roots, I think, in evangelical Protestantism. You know, I think it goes back to the 19th century and that the nation, whether it's prohibition or, of course, there's an attempt to use state power, but slavery then these social issues in the late 19th century, there's a strong sense that the country is never going to get on the right track until we convert people. Um, so I think that there's a left version of that still today, which is that the universities often act as though only culture matters, and so they're going to evangelize in, in their kind of post-Protestant, progressive post-Protestant methods. And then in the evangelical Protestant world today, which I think is where you're going to find the highest concentration of people who say only culture, culture matters are among Protestant social conservatives. And then secondly, the flawed foundations pessimism, which I think is, again, 
very important and it has a left version and a right version and I would submit actually the left version is probably older than the right version. I mean anybody who's a kind of Marxist inflected view of society is going to think that America has flawed, fatally flawed foundations. But I would say that in, on the right, the, you would find the highest concentration of people here would be Catholics. Um, because Catholicism has a long tradition, stemming back to the French Revolution, of a deep critique of modernity as based on fatally flawed foundations. Think of Jacques Maritain's early book when he was under the influence of L'Action Française, his book Luther. The Three Reformers. De, yeah, Three Reformers, Luther, Descartes, and Rousseau. And I think it's a very kind of clear expression of a deep 19th century Catholic critique of modernity. And so all modern regimes are going to be fatally flawed. I think Alistair McIntyre participates in this tradition. You get people like Jean Courtney Murray, who's trying to remediate that tendency and trying to build a bridge. So, yes, they're flawed foundations, but the founders built better than they knew. And of course, Arrestee Bronson in the 19th century was. Uh, the American Republic, I think that's the title of his book, was an attempt to 